The world is wild and wonderful. There's so much yet to know. So here we are with questions. It's a what in the Sam Hill show. We've done the math. We've read the books. We've searched through archives. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Letting it fly. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Welcome back, y'all. My name is Erin, and this is the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I investigate paranormal phenomena, high strangeness, cryptozoology, ancient mythology, and the delightfully odd. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to encourage you to check out the podcast website. There we have show notes for each episode that contains relative relevant links to papers and articles used in research for the episode. I also want to encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share the podcast with your friends. Let's build a community of weirdos together. And if you're feeling frisky for some of the more woo topics here, you can check out my other project, The Moonbeam Medium. Links for all of that goodness will be in the episode description. Now, let the ranting commence. Um... So I know I said on Twitter that I wasn't going to record today, and then I decided I'm going to record today, because my kid's sick, and so I thought I was not going to be able to record because I thought she would be home, and then it turned out I woke up sick too, and so my husband was kind enough to take the baby with him so that I could try to get some work done, which I did, um, but uh, I figure I don't know how long she's going to be sick, and so I better just take my take my opportunities where I get them. I'm hoping that I sound more like Kathleen Turner in Undercover Blues than just what I feel like. <laughs> anyway, we got a hot one for you today. Honestly, I'm I'm actually really quite proud of the work I put into this one. So if you don't know, I really only research things I'm interested in. And that's one reason you may never see a big, Bigfoot podcast on this show Unless some awesome new research comes out because uh, I'm kind of a Bigfoot fanatic and so I basically already know everything I need to know about Bigfoot. Um, so my general show ideas do come from other people because like I'll hear a theory or um, I'll hear like a blurb in someone else's podcast and then I, you know, I have questions and so I want answers and I'll add it to my list of, of possible shows. But I try to avoid listening to other podcasts and other researchers in the lead up to the show. Unless I'm going to like directly reference their work. I try mostly to go back to the primary resources. And kind of get my own idea of what's going on without the bias of knowing other people's opinions. So for this episode, I did that and I found some stuff that I personally had not heard before in any other podcast, which is always like a super exciting feeling. Even if other people know about this stuff and have talked about it, because I don't know about it, I don't, you know, I don't listen to all the different amazing podcasts that there are in the conspiracy sphere. To me, it feels like I'm the only one in the world who figured this thing out. And it's such a high, like 10 out of 10 recommend to anyone looking for excitement in their lives historical re historic research can actually be super rewarding um so today we're going to discuss the chicago world's fair some of you are aware of the tartaria and mud floods conspiracy theory and how they relate to the world's fairs if you have no idea what i'm saying let me give you the elevator pitch 
So the theory goes like this. Everything you know about history from the Middle Ages back is false. There was once an advanced civilization known as Tartaria that extended to every continent, but there was a cataclysmic event that caused the Tartarian civilization to be lost and buried, both literally and in the record books. Kind of like, you know, Atlantis, but um, not underwater, necessarily. Um, But then, as Europeans colonized and settled America, we began to find remnants of the Tartarian civilization that was buried and you know, we essentially dug them up in our efforts to, you know, build new civilization. And supposedly we found whole buildings, but the powers that be could not like allow the peasants to know about it, to know about Tartarian civilization, to know this thing existed at all. It would ruin the mythos of manifest destiny and the progress of man. So instead they decided to hold these world fairs in the various towns where they were discovering these buildings. And so they would excavate the beautiful Tartarian buildings. They would pretend they were new construction. They would hold the fair and then they would destroy all but one building to hide the true legacy. Um, and so I'm going to be honest, as of right now, I am not a believer in Tartaria. I'm not saying that I have seen evidence that it's bollocks. I just haven't seen evidence in favor of it. And in lieu of seeing evidence in favor of something, I'm more inclined to just go with what I know. You know what I mean? Um, All I've really seen is a lot of speculation. And that's really all I've seen with the World's Fairs more specifically. I just, I haven't seen any evidence of these being existing Tartarian buildings being exhumed. I've seen a ton of evidence raising questions about the conventional narrative and that's great but just like i warned last week with the flat earth flat earth episode it's a false binary when you disprove one theory to prove another just because you have disproven this one theory it only shows that that model was inaccurate it says nothing about the accuracy of your model you know occam's razor is often misstated as the simplest explanation is the best in reality the true meaning is more akin to You shouldn't make more assumptions than is needed to explain the data. And the reason you keep your assumptions to a minimum is for the purposes of testing. The more assumptions you have, the harder it is to prove true or false. Jumping from, I'm not sure they're telling us everything about this building to, I'm not sure they're telling us anything true about history ever is a bigger leap than I am willing to make without better evidence. So let's go find some evidence. Um... Well, okay, so first things first, I'm just looking at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893 today. And even more specifically, I'm going to try to focus on the Palace of Fine Arts building, which is the one main building designed to be permanent. Um, And it's the one main building still standing. There's a few side buildings um, that were like different countries or whatever, different states that got moved to other locations afterwards and are still standing. But as far as on site, the main buildings still standing. This is the only one. My thought was that if the theory is true on the whole, then it has to hold up for this one specific building at this one specific fair. And it's much easier to research research one building than it is the whole of Tataria, right? I mean, if you're con- going to consider that Tataria was probably across the globe, according to some conspiracy theorists, then 
I can't research everything ever. So let's discuss a brief overview of the Chicago, the Chicago World's Fair, specifically of 1893. They had another one later. Starting in the mid-19th century, different countries started hosting these World's Fairs. And it was basically to humble brag about being awesome while pretending to hold hands and sing Kumbaya with all the other nations. It's kind of, well, it's very similar to the Olympics, but instead of sports, it was art and industry. Um, But there are similarities. You have the massive construction that doesn't get used for anything else. You have the massive costs that are never recuperated. And then you have nations acting like catty sorority girls saying, oh my gosh, I love you. And then stabbing each other in the back 20 seconds later. Same, same, but different. You know what I mean? I should also mention that each fair is actually called an exposition. So the 1893 Chicago Fair was the World Columbian Exposition, obviously named after Christopher Columbus. Um, And that's important to know if you're going to look at the resources in the show notes. Other than that, conventionally, people just call it the world's the Chicago World's Fair. But as far as the official title, it is the World Columbian Exposition. So with any politically motivated spectacle, you would expect drama. And there was. Some of it was more interesting than other parts. So, for example, in the newspapers, the most widely discussed dramas were a considerable hubbub over whether the fair was racist and a considerable hubbub over whether the fair should be open on Sundays. Um, The Sunday issue isn't all that surprising, and I would consider it more of a distraction. Well, both I would consider distractions. The argument that was that by closing on Sundays, it was going to hinder working class people from enjoying the fair as they would only have Saturday to visit. And I guess they'd like physically run out of room for all the working class people. I don't know. Um, But this is pre-prohibition by about like three decades, really. Um, You've got a strong temperance movement movement going on across the country. I think at this time, uh, Vermont had statewide prohibition if I remember correctly, from our Champ episode. Um, And, you know, Sunday was still considered sacred. So that conflict was really just kind of inevitable. I don't read anything into it. The racial issue was because all of the displays and buildings for non-European foreigners, and I think for the Native Americans as well, were very far from the main area, which was ironically called White City. Now, supposedly that is because they decided to whitewash all of the buildings, but of course the newspapers couldn't help but capitalize on the double meaning. Now, if I was putting my conspiratorial hat on, which I pretty much do any all the time anyway, but in this one hypothetical, if I was putting my conspiratorial hat on, I could see how if I had a bunch of existing buildings that I needed to explain away... I might put any cultures with conflicting architecture very far away and then, you know, leak to a newspaper reporter trying to make his bones that it was because of racism. A fake frenzy about all of that would be way easier than trying to explain why all of these buildings look so different from the others Um, and they're constructed different and... It, you know, just there's there's so many things that you would have to explain, but I think that's another unnecessary leap. 
when, I mean, honestly, we can rest assured that nearly everyone back then was racist, especially the rich people running the show who could afford to live separate from other cultures and ethnicities. All right, we're back. Sorry for the pause. I had to wet my whistle. One of the joys of being sick is that I have to drink a lot more. Um, so anyway, 1893 was also the World's Fair that had the famous Edison v. Tesla ACDC showdown where Edison actually brought an electric chair to show fairgoers just how dangerous Tesla's AC power was. Total propaganda move. When you can't win, fight dirty, I suppose. It's too bad that Edison wasn't smart enough to understand that everything in the universe is tied to frequency, um, even our human bodies. So, of course, working within the universal framework was going to be more effective than forcing the universe to bend to your will with DC power, um, as far as, like, for transmission goes. Uh, obviously, we use DC power... Um, within our homes from the outlet, you know, we all have the little adapters or whatever that plug in, but as far as transmission, AC is so much more efficient and effective. Uh, but you know, as much as I find all of that fascinating, I also recognize that that's mostly because I'm an electrical engineer by trade and I don't care for Edison in the slightest. Um, <laughs> I actually, I feel sure that when my kid's teacher starts telling them who invented the light bulb, that she will be ranting on my behalf that Edison was a far better charlatan than he was an engineer, and that the Edison, the light bulb was simply just a patent of other people's work, and that Edison was responsible for using and abusing Nikola Tesla, who is the greatest mind of the last 150 years. I mean, I can hear it now. So, as you can see, it's something that... I have, you know, a clear bias in, and I recognize my bias. Um, and I, I mean, I recognize that that probably makes it seem to me like it was a bigger deal than it actually was. So I, I don't think it's related to this conspiracy, but don't forget to thank, Nestle, thank Tesla for your AC power. And I mean, actual Tesla, not the company. But some of the drama was more interesting. So Chicago was awarded the World's Fair in 1890 based on a vote. Side note, voting is a great way to make people feel that they're involved in the process when really you know where you're holding the fair all along. When people think they're involved, they're far less likely to question the circumstances and the validity of the choices. Um, I mean, clearly this technique, wor technique works. We use it in our government. Our government has used it quite successfully for centuries, and I think it was actually the anarchist Emma Goldman who said if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. I'm not saying this voting was rigged. I'm just saying that having a vote doesn't disprove that it's not, it, you know, uh, that's a double negative. I'm just saying it. having a vote doesn't make it 100% that it wasn't a rigged situation. Anyway, Pretty quickly, a leadership team is chosen. Requests for bids start going out in the newspapers. Grading and clear-cutting of Jackson Park begins. In, 1890, in June of 1891, construction on the physical building starts, um, particularly the main buildings. And then by about a year later, all the main buildings are complete or nearly so. 
for reference, it's not unusual for a building of the size of the Palace of Fine Arts to take five years from design to completion today, um, especially if it is a government-involved building where you have a lot more red tape. To have that building go from design to completion in a year and a half at the same time as a hundred other buildings, some equally large, if not larger, is beyond breakneck speed. Um, you know, even if the facades on the other buildings were cheap materials, you still have an inordinate amount of steelwork and infrastructure. So actually, let's talk about that for a minute. One of the complaints of the conspiracy community is that the buildings were constructed way too fast to have actually been constructed. You know what I mean? Um, like, they think that the speed of supposed construction is proof that the buildings were excavated rather than constructed. And they say that there's, you know, no way that they could have found enough labor for all the construction going on and all that. Um, well, I did find one newspaper article in which one of the builders says essentially you know, people keep claiming we're using cheap labor from Canada and recording, recruiting everyone out of the slums to get the work done. And that's completely false. And then he goes into a diatribe about moral fortitude and the sanctity of man and like a whole bunch of BS. So I can almost guarantee they were absolutely getting cheap labor from Canada and the slums to get it all done. So I think that there actually was more... Um, there were more workers on site and available to do the construction than most people would just assume. Um, so anyway, back to our timeline, 1892, the exhibits and the concessions start moving in. There's a soft opening slash dedication in October of 1892. And then the official opening was in May of 1893. The fair runs through the summer and closes at the end of October 1893. All right, so going back to January of 1891, though, we have two odd things happen. First, the main architect, John Root, suddenly dies of pneumonia at age 41. Now, this is before antibiotics, so it's not as shocking as it would be today. Um, you know, I personally had ancestors die of really minor things because they didn't have antibiotics and I know that was not unusual um, but it was still quite a blow so Daniel Burnham who was his business partner had to take over and I like to think of Daniel Burnham as the Thomas Edison of architecture so you could already tell how I feel about him um, he was far better at marketing himself and letting others do the actual work than he was at being an architect, which uh, I don't have much respect for, but whatever. Um, but we'll come back to him in a minute because there's more to that story. The other weird thing is that the head of the expo, Wyman Gage, announced his resignation by way of not seeking re-election that April. I don't know how often that they had elections but it seems odd to me that like you're just heading into the like the thick of things and you have an election um for who should be president but whatever he told reporters it was so that he could become president of a local bank and he swears up and down that that's definitely the only reason um so let me read this newspaper article actually 
pause. Kids, if you're going to read a newspaper article in your podcast, I might suggest signing in in advance. It makes it a lot more efficient. Um, <laughs> anyway, Lyman J. Gage created great surprise and regret in World's Fair circles yesterday by announcing that he would retire from the presidency of the world's Columbian Exposition the 1st of April. This decision he declared to be final. He will not resign, but simply decline re-election upon the expiration of his president, present term of office, which terminates in April, when the annual election of directors takes place. Oh, okay, so I guess it was annual, so that's not that weird. I guess they just assume that once you become president, you're just going to stay that way. Anyway. Upon his retirement from the presidency of the World's Fair Board of Directors, Mr. Gage will assume the presidency of the First National Bank. This, he announces, is his sole reason for declining a re-election to the former office. There is no hidden reason for my actions, said Mr. Gage yesterday. Mm-hmm. I gave up the presidency for business reasons alone. The duties are growing more responsible... I had either to give up the banking business or the responsibilities of my present position within the with the World's Fair directory. One man cannot cannot properly attend to both. Okay, that's fine, but you're taking a, a promotion in the banking business. It's not like you can't do your job that you were already doing. It's that you're taking a promotion. It could hardly be a doubtful question whether with me under the circumstances as to what I should do. Banking is the business of my life. Any position with the World's Fair will not be a work of two. Any position with the World's Fair will be a work of two or three years. I could not afford to cut off my connection with the First National Bank for what the World's Fair might offer. Um. And then you know yada yada yada. Doing a little bit more. And da, 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 da. Oh, hold on. I did miss something important. So then the reporter says, uh, Then there is no matter of dissatisfaction or anything of that sort which has contributed to form your dis decision. And he says, None whatever. I could go right along with the directors and maintain the pleasant relations that have existed in the past. They are a pretty independent lot, but I think we could continue to get along together. And the reporter says, It is understood that you are to be promoted to the presidency of the bank? <laughs> yep, good question. And uh, then he says, well, I guess that is correct. M Mr. Nickerson declined re-election to the presidency until it was understood that he might retire as soon as I saw a way of relieving myself of so much World's Fair work and assuming his duties. I did not wish to resign and thought it best to wait until next April when my term of office expires. So, he is technically getting a promotion um and i'm i mean i'm sure he is like you know next in line or whatever and then weirdly there's like some people providing comment that are basically like woe is me we're just gonna fall apart without him oh my goodness which i find to be completely disingenuous of course um but then mr nickerson that he referred to provides comment so it says um, S.M. Nickerson, president of the First National Bank, said that Mr. Gage should take the presidency of the bank is a step that has been contemplated for some time past. 
During my frequent absences, he has been acting president, and I have only waited to resign in favor of Mr. Gage until such a time as he would be released from other duties and would be able to give to the bank's affairs the undivided t attention they demand. As president of the bank, Mr. Gage will have such demands on his time that I do not see how he could possibly accept another position which contemplates some, some share of his attention. This change will take effect as soon as Mr. Gage is relieved from his other duties. For 23 years, he has been associated with the bank and his advancement in the line of a policy long before decided on. Or his advancement is in the line of a policy long before decided on. As for myself, I shall retain my stock and still be among the bank directors and devote to its interests whatever time I can. So... To me, that was a very, like, canned response, you know? It was not, it had no personality to it. It literally was, like, a business memo that a business would put out when a CEO decides to retire or something. And it just, it feels weird. It feels like they're looking for an excuse, you know what I mean? I guess it's possible that uh, Mr. Nickerson just couldn't wait a couple of years to retire. Maybe he had some health issues or something like that, and... He basically put Lyman between a rock and a hard place. But it just, I mean, the timing is so curious and it just feels odd. And like I said, I mean, it was like a canned response. It was not something where it was like, I have health issues and he has to take over or, you know, I want to go see my grandkids in Florida or something. You know what I mean? Like, they're just, this is the plan. This is what we're doing. It's definitely not for any other reason. Um, and it just, it feels like the lady doth protest too much. So, I mean, you know, maybe if something was afoot and Lyman saw the writing on the wall with Burnham taking over, he wanted out before the going got going. I'm just saying. So getting back to Burnham, though, Daniel Burnham failed at basically everything he ever did including getting into college, until all of a sudden he had become a famous architect, basically by being the face of the company and letting Root do all the heavy lifting. Of the designs that have been credited as Burnham's across his career, I'm not sure that any of them were actually designed by him. And, you know, even though people say that Burnham was the architect of the World's Fair, if you look a little bit deeper into people who do their research... The actual design of the Palace of Fine Arts was supposedly done by Charles Atwood. And he is another interesting character. So the story goes that Burnham, in need of a replacement for Root, went recruiting and found Atwood in New York. Atwood comes to Chicago in April of 1891, just three months after Root's death and two months before construction begins on the main buildings. Atwood takes the rough work that Root started and finishes the Palace of Fine Arts as well as several, several other buildings. Did he have time? Personally, I would say no. I know how long architecture takes, but whatever. After the chaos of the fair is over, Atwood falls into a, quote, nervous condition and slowly degrades over the course of two years. Finally, he parts ways with Burnham in December of 1895 and dies a week later. The papers suggested that it was caused by overwork and that Root died of overwork as well. I suppose that could happen if your boss, architect boss, doesn't know a keystone from a buttress. 
Eric Larson, author of Devil in the White City, suggests that Atwood was an opium addict, which would explain his supposedly erratic behavior. Granted, opium addiction was not unheard of back then. It was the area, era of the, the opium den. And quite frankly, I mean, it's not rare now either. We have a huge opioid epidemic problem, even though it's not strict. It's, it's opioids, not opium, but you know. It's the same sort of addiction. But I take this accusation with many grains of salt because it came from Burnham himself. And I couldn't find any corroboration from others. Everything I read was that Atwood was this, like, wonderful person. So I'm not sure. Um, Granted, who would, like, you know, put their dirty laundry in the newspaper? Larson also suggests, in a throwaway line, mind you, that Atwood died mysteriously. Of course, he doesn't expound or provide any reference, so I'm just left frustrated. Eric Larson, if you're listening to this ever in the next hundred years, please let me know where you found that information. I want to know if Atwood was a patsy. Um, I mean, it wouldn't have been hard for Burnham to slowly poison Atwood and then claim opium addiction later. Atwood was unmarried and had no family in Chicago, so it wasn't like there were a lot of people to stick up for him in the Chicago community. It's also possible it really was a nervous condition. Um, It was his doctor that was quoted in the newspaper article, um, his obituary really, that said it was a nervous condition. And so, I mean, it's possible that the stress of keeping a big secret was eating away at him, kind of like young Sheldon when he found out his dad had hit a $300 check from his mom. But then, you know, maybe when Atwood finally said enough is enough and tried to quit the firm, that's when Burnham killed him. I mean, stranger things have happened, right? Another unexplained death, perhaps the oddest, occurred at the cold storage building. So in July of 1893, so this would be like mid-fair, the height of the fair, the top of the smokestack of the cold storage building caught on fire and it quickly ignited. There was like a decorative cupola around the top of the smokestack so it didn't look so industrial, but there was a breeze and so the fire from the top of the smokestack blew into the decorative cupola and caught that on fire. Firefighters entered to try to put out the fire, but as they were working, the smokestack then caught fire at the bottom also, and they were trapped between the two, um, either outside or inside. They were kind of both. Um, Some of them, I think, jumped. But a total of 16 people died, and that included 12 firefighters, two electricians, one was like a superintendent and one was a lineman, one boilermaker and one unidentified body. There was also the suggestion in the newspapers that there were 10 other bodies found, but it turned out to be sheep that had been slaughtered and dressed and left in cold storage for preservation. The newspapers were also thankful that the public ice rink that was supposed to be in the cold storage building was never finished, or they said more lives could have been lost, which brings me to the tangent that I don't think all the buildings were as finished as the fair management claimed. Um, They were still accepting bids for work in December of 1892, which is ridiculous. Um, But anyway, so Burnham, the fire marshal, and the builders were brought before a grand jury in August, I guess in some attempt at 
you know, justice or whatever. But ultimately, no one was identified, uh, indicted, sorry, indicted. Um, but I want to get back to the unidentified body. No one was identified for the body either. Um, so all they found of this unidentified body was a foot and a leg. And no one that they had working on the scene was unaccounted for. Um, there were a, maybe, you know, some theories tossed around, but no one could figure out who this body was. And even now to this day, the uh, memorial stone that has um, the, you know, at the, at the uh, cemetery only has 15 names on it. Um, but it reminds me so much of Chandler Halderson who is the guy who was just convicted in Wisconsin of murdering, dismembering, and partially cremating his parents. Um, if you haven't watched Nick Ricada's coverage of that trial, it was wow. Um, as Nick says, the trial itself was extremely boring, but the facts were wild. So he tried burning the bodies like he chopped up these bodies and he tried burning them in the home fireplace but it got so hot that it actually burnt the fire like broke and burnt the fireplace um he had to then take you know body parts elsewhere and dump them but the fact the the fireplace breaking is what i want to focus on a true crematorium is built for much hotter temperatures than a home fireplace because as gross as it is, human body fat burns extremely hot, much hotter than just regular wood. And those high temperatures are actually encouraged for the purposes of cremating the bones. Um, because obviously bone uh, burns at a much higher temperature than just regular skin or whatever. A crematorium can get up to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit during the cremation process. Um which is crazy hot. And you got to think like, uh, for example, with spontaneous human combustion, if you're looking at the wick effect, um, which, you know, uh, I'm not convinced of with spontaneous human combustion. I'm actually going to have to do an episode on that at some point because I have a lot of questions about spontaneous human combustion. I mean, who doesn't, right? It's fascinating. But if you think about the wick effect and how it's supposed to work, you get some sort of like cut um, or, you know, a burn from a cigarette, then that fat is that fat is open to the clothing. And so then the fat melts and sucks up on the clothing and that person burns extremely hot, extremely fast. And it goes so hot, so fast um, that it essentially burns out and then doesn't burn anything else around it. So everything within like that little bit burns extremely hot and extremely fast to the point where the person can't move, you know, they're, I guess they're incapacitated at some point. So it, you know, it just, it burns really hot, really fast, and then doesn't spread. Now, if someone tried to burn a body in the smokestack, I could absolutely see how it could burn hot and fast enough to catch the top of the smokestack on fire especially if it was aided by a breeze. I mean, you see the the pictures of spontaneous human combustion. There is significant flame damage to the very small amount of roof that is just over the person. So I could see how that would happen in this smokestack. 
It would also explain why so little of the body was recovered. I mean, if this 16th victim was the source of the fire, I wouldn't expect many remains. If any, really, as compared to the firefighters who just got, you know, stuck in the fire or fell under, um, you know, the collapsing building or what have you, they would have fire damage, but they wouldn't be, um, you know, uh, burnt beyond having remains. I mean, just one foot and one leg is not a lot to work with. Um, it would also, to me, explain why the firefighters' efforts were essentially in vain. From all of the descriptions I read of kind of the fire timeline, it seems like it wasn't until the firefighters started putting, started putting water on the fire that um, the fire below broke out. And you know, everyone knows you don't put water on a grease fire because it will essentially explode. I just, I wonder if someone was trying to get rid of a body and ended up killing a bunch of firefighters in the process. But the strangeness does not stop there. So in October of 1893, just a few days before the closing ceremony, the Chicago mayor is assassinated. The folks that, I mean, the... <laughs> The bodies are stacking up, folks. It feels, honestly, it feels like the movie Shooter with Marky Mark, where he's like at that cabin in Tennessee with the old man. And the old man mentions something about the assassination job would have been a bad idea. Marky Mark asks why. And the old man says, okay, let me work on this accent. The old man, whoever shot that, whoever took that shot's probably dead now. That's how conspiracy works. Them boys on the grassy knoll, they were dead within three hours. Buried in the damn desert. Unmarked graves out past Terralingua. That was a terrible accent. Anyway, Marky Mark goes, and you know this for a fact, and the old man, answer, old man answers, Still got the shovel! One of the best lines of movie history, in my opinion. I love that line. Um, but that's what it feels like. It feels like the bodies are stacking up for a reason. Like, maybe someone wants to make sure a secret doesn't get out. I mean, that's a lot of bodies. Um, anyway, so five-time mayor Carter Harrison III was supposedly shot by Eugene Patrick Pendergrass. And, of course, we know this because he turned himself in before, before authorities even knew that the mayor had been shot. Um... And in his interview with the police, he sure seemed to think he wasn't going to suffer any consequences. For our benefit, the newspaper was kind enough to pub publish a rough transcript of that conversation. Let's read through it, shall we? Um, da -da 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 -da. Have you ever noticed with old newspapers, they used to have so much more information in them? They would have these, this tiny writing, but there would be crap ton of columns. And now, these days, the front page of a newspaper is 90% picture with, like, a little bit of writing. I just, you know, there used to be so many things involved. All right. So, Pendergrass identified and made to answer many interrogatory interrogatories. We do not use that word that way anymore. Okay, so he says, I was justified in killing the mayor. He broke his word with me about track elevation. He betrayed my confidence. 
So spoke the murderer of Mayor Harrison as he sat nervously in Inspector Shea's office at the Central Station at 9.30 o'clock last night. I've been thinking about the shooting of the mayor for several days. Yesterday, I went over to a store on Milwaukee Avenue and bought a revolver. I paid $4 for it. Don't you wish gun prices were still that low? Hello, inflation. It was a secondhand gun, five shooter, but I thought it would do as well as anything else. I spent the day at, I spent the day at the YMCA rooms on Kinsey Street. About eight o'clock, I went over to the mayor's house and rang the bell. The young criminal, with his protruding lower lip, his retreating forehead, and his leering eyes, shifted uneasily in his chair, twisted his legs about, and refused to go on. Inspector Shea asked him where he was born. Well, I've lived in Chicago ever since I was five years old. But were you born here? Well, I've always lived here. I was born in Europe. What happened when you rang the bell at the Harrison home, insinuated Inspector Shea. The servant girl came to the door. I told her I wanted to see the mayor. And then I shot him. I didn't say a word to the mayor, nor he to, nor he to me. I shot him, and I was justified in doing it. How many shots did you fire? I fired three shots. That was enough. There was another in the gun. I thought he said it was a five-shooter. He only... Okay, whatever. Who puts four bullets in a five-shooter? What's wrong with you people? What is your full name? Patrick Eugene Joseph Pendergrast. Oh, it's Patrick Eugene, not Eugene Patrick. Well... Then everyone else reporting this is wrong. <laughs> My mother is a good, innocent woman. She lives over at number 609 Jane Street, west of Seymour. She, we used to live at number 357 Ohio Street. That's a weird thing to publish in a newspaper, whatever. Did you ever, did you ever go to school? Yes, I'm a good Catholic. I studied at St. Patrick's School. I know a good many big men. Now, there's Archbishop... I forget his name. Just note that, because I'll come back to it. Um, but what did you have against the mayor? I made up my mind to shoot him, and I had some difficulty in doing it. The mayor failed to fulfill his promise to me to elevate the tracks. What happened when the mayor came to the door? I don't remember exactly. I came out and ran away. Men chased me. I jumped on a streetcar and rode down to the Displains Street Station. I walked into the desk sergeant and said, I have killed the mayor. Who are your relatives? What a weird question to ask after that statement. I've got one brother, John. He's a clerk in the post office. My mother and I used to live at number three, 357 Ohio Street. You just said that, kid. Where do you work? I work as a distributor for the Morning Inter-Ocean and Evening Post. I am employed by the city circulators of these papers. Loading, loading, page two. J.H. Johnson is the circulator of the Inner Ocean. I will note right here that this is published in the Chicago Tribune, so they probably left that in there because that's their competitor. How old are you? Why, I'm 25. I think I was justified in shooting the mayor. If I get a fair trial before a fair jury, I'll be acquitted. Have you ever studied law? No, I've never studied or practiced. I just put that pistol in my pocket and went over and shot the mayor. At frequent intervals, the prisoner squirmed uneasily in his chair and refused for a moment to proceed. 
He is a smooth-faced, hollow-cheeked, weak-looking young man. Shots fired. The most prominent feature of his face being a protruding upper lip. At this point, I will say that they have included a pencil sketch of him, and they have made him look very ugly on purpose. His whole appearance indicated a depraved and vicious mind. His nose is sharp and crooked, and his hair, cut short, sparsely covers his misshapen head. Um, I'm remembering now as I'm reading this, this is kind of the area of, like, or the era of, like, phrenology and all that, where they thought that the shape of your head indicated your intelligence and your personality traits and all that, and um, they used that pseudoscience to justify some super racist views. Let's say that. Have you ever read law? No. What made you think you could become corporation counsel? That office requires a sharp, shrewd lawyer. Couldn't I elevate the tracks? With my plan, I could do that without being a lawyer. I What in the world? I, see, I don't remember a reference to the corporate, corp, corporation counsel. Is that what he was talking about? I don't know. Whatever. Maybe that was a reference to something that was not included in this article. Have you ever been in the detention hospital or were you ever tried for insanity? No, I was never insane. Were any of your relatives ever in an asylum or crazy that you know of? Not that I know of. Ask my brother. I am not crazy. I shot Carter Harrison. Chief Brennan took a hand in the cross-questioning. Why did you shoot the mayor? He asked. Pendergrass shifted his position but exclaimed readily. Didn't he ruin the Democratic Party? <laughs> is that why you shot him? Interposed the chief. I'm sorry, this is kind of funny to me. He betrayed me, was the answer. He offered to make me corporation counsel, and then he didn't do it. Oh, I wonder if this happened actually before the other thing and they just misprinted. The chief of police turned aside to say, The man is undoubtedly crazy. He looks and acts so. I am under the impression that he is demented. Neither his speech nor his actions are consistent. That's true. Did you realize what you have done? Do you, do you realize what you have done? He didn't keep his promise, was the answer, and I had to kill him. With Chief Brennan at the time, eh, you know, essentially, it's same thing on and on and on. Um... More about elevating the tracks. I guess Chicago now does have elevated tracks, doesn't it? Um, but anyway, so reading through that, I just, I mean, I have so many questions. And I, I guess he could just be a crazy person, but it just seems like there's something else going on. Um, it was interesting that he denoted that he knows a lot of powerful men and then went to go name an archbishop and stopped. And, um... You know, you have to wonder if that, that archbishop was possibly involved. Um, his canned answers where he's repeating the same things over and over, like, I shot the mayor, I shot the mayor, I shot the mayor. It reminds me of the Theodore Edgecombe trial. Man, I'm really referencing a lot of Nick Ricada's stuff. If you haven't figured it out, I watch that kind of stuff in the background while I work because, uh, well, that's, you know, it's nice to have some noise in the background. Anyway, um... Theodore Edgecombe had a lot of answers that were, I shot in self-defense, I shot in self-defense, I shot in self-defense. 
to questions where that is not an appropriate answer. And it felt like the same thing. He was saying, you know, I shot the mayor, I shot the mayor, I shot the mayor. I was justified in doing it. But really, you know, it was to random questions. And he was like repeating his address and stuff. It just seemed like practiced answers, I guess, it was my impression. So, I, I mean, I wonder if he was a patsy. I wonder if someone put him up to it or um, maybe even just put him up to saying he did it. I mean, he says that people chased him, but I don't know if that actually happened. Um, you know, maybe they even just they promised him they'd come get him out of jail and he'd never go to trial. And so that's why he's sitting there being real shifty because he's like, I'm expecting someone to come get me and no one's coming to get me. Um, he seemed kind of poor if he was staying at the YMCA, you know, maybe it all, all it took was the promise of some money. Um, maybe he thought there was going to be some, uh, compensation of, you know, more, more of like a clout situation, a promotion or something. If he's talking about these big men that he knows, um, you know, I'm just, I'm always very skeptical in general of murders with three names. You notice that he said his full name was Patrick Eugene, uh, what is it? Patrick Eugene something Pendergrast. And all of everything else I read everywhere else said Eugene Patrick Pendergrast. So the media was not even publishing his actual name. They were publishing what they wanted you to know. Um, you know, the media has always been a little crooked, a lot of crooked. Uh, but, you know, the media puts out a three-name kind of blurb, um, shall we say. It's not really a nickname because it's their name, but the media, you know, especially with, like, bad murderers or people that they want you to think are really horrible people, they'll put out three names for them. And they do that to make them seem scary, but honestly, according to my research, they're usually the ones who didn't do it, except for, like, you know, John Wayne Gacy, um, which, you know, even then they could have been doing that to make John Wayne look bad. I don't know. Frickin' A. Um, but I think, you know, we all have questions in the conspiracy community about Lee Hart v. Oswald and John Wilkes Booth and all them. So I'm super sketchy or I'm super skeptical. I think it's very sketchy that the media took his actual name, which had, uh, you know, Patrick, Eugene, whatever, Pendergrass and turned it into Eugene Patrick Pendergrass. I think they were trying to make it seem like he was a, a much, and you know, those horrible descriptions of him, he seemed like an idiot, if nothing else. You know what I mean? So it seemed like they were trying to make him out to be something much worse than he was. And that makes me think he was a patsy. Ultimately, though, None of that matters. It isn't proof of anything other than we don't know the full story. So as I said at the beginning, you know, you can't prove your theory just by disproving another. There has to be some there there. And that's the hardest part. How do you prove something existed buried underneath, underneath Jackson Park before the fair? You know, I don't really know. They're not photos. It's not like they're going to document their excavation for you. And there's only a handful of maps. And those aren't topographical, plus you're at the mercy of the cartographer. Um, you know, Jackson Park was at the very edge of Chicago when the fair was built. The neighborhood north of the park and west of the top portion of the park where the Palace of Fine Arts was, it was only settled about 40 years before the fair. 
And in the middle of that was the Great Chicago Fire. The neighborhood south and west of the lower half of the park grew as a result of the fair. And by all accounts, Jackson Park was left as an undeveloped marsh during all of that construction. Um, you know, they're the settlement of, of that of Hyde Park neighborhood north of there. North of there. So it's possible that no one really explored it all, the ma- all that much, but still, it's a marsh on the edge of a massive lake in the Midwest. I mean, sure, that you've got murder and mystery and intrigue, but how are you hiding a three-story building underground without some serious grade changes? But I found something. One reference. One newspaper article that describes the topo- topography of Jackson Park. It does describe it as the marsh that we see everywhere else, but it mentions a ridge running through the park. It doesn't mention the height of the ridge or the length of the ridge or the location of the ridge, but one ridge is more evidence than no ridges at all, and it at, very, at the very least tells me that there was some sort of non-flatness in the middle of this park. Um, I would find it much more difficult to believe that they found a building and exhumed a building out of a flat marsh. Because otherwise you'd have to dig a hole down to to pull it out, you know? So maybe it was under the ridge. Um, Who knows? The article also mentions something interesting. It says that the South Parks, that is Jackson Park and the other parks on the south side of Chicago had already been in the hands of the famous landscape architect Frederick Law, Frederick Law Olmsted for a while, and that plans had been in action for taming the wilds of Jackson Park since before they knew the fair was coming to Chicago. Or, as the article says, um, when they thought that they were going to have to tax the citizens of Chicago to pay for it or something like that. Um So who is Frederick Law Olmsted? He is yet another odd blip in this story. Um, Born in Connecticut to, I think, a semi-wealthy family, he was supposed to go to Yale, but had some health issues that prevented him. Um, Supposedly something involving poison sumac making his eyes weak, which sounds like BS to me, but whatever. His little brother, though, John Hull Olmsted, went to Yale, and was in Skull and Bones, class of 1845. Weirdly, Frederick also married John's widow two years after John died, and it I don't know if it's, like, as odd as, like, you know, regardless of your political sentiments, Hunter Biden banging his dead brother's widow, kind of weird, well, really weird in the 21st century, um... But, you know, back in Old Testament, it was standard to step up to the plate to fulfill your duties to the family kind of thing. If your brother died, you married their widow or whatever. I don't know where in the range of, like, normal to weird that kind of behavior was in the 1800s. But to me, feels weird. Feels super weird. And I haven't seen anyone else doing in this, in, this in the 1800s, so I'm going to say it's weird. But the Yale connection is super interesting because Mayor Carter Harrison III, um, who, by the way, Wikipedia calls Carter Harrison Sr., I guess because 
one and two weren't in the public eye, but three and four were. So they, they go by senior and junior. Who knows? Anyway, Carter Harrison III also went to Yale. He was in Scroll and Key, which was the other powerful senior society. Um, at the time, there were two. It was it was Skull and Bones and uh, Skull and Bones and Scroll and Key, and then later in like the eighteen nineties, I think, is when Wolfsden or whatever it's called, Wolf's Head, something like that, um, became the other senior society. And then now there's a lot more, but like at the time, it was just these two, and they still persist, and they're known for being well. You know, if you're in the conspiracy community, you already know. But Mayor Carter. Harrison the third graduated drumroll please class of 1845 each of those societies skull and bones and scroll and key I mean I know they're not the same society but each one only has 15 men per year and at the time in particular I don't know what it is now but at the time they were supposed to wear their badges everywhere like even to the point where it said they were supposed to like hold their badge in their mouth while swimming if they had to because they didn't have enough clothes on to put their badge on their clothes um so i feel like these people would have known about each other and so i find that connection very weird very interesting um it's very interesting that not only do you have a well-connected landscape architect who's in charge of that area before the fair and then would have been you know aware of anything weird happening under the soil and then also you've got the mayor involved in those societies and he gets assassinated right as the fair is about to close like they're tying up loose ends you know so so what did we learn right what what do what do we get out of all this well we learned that at best daniel burnham was a con artist who made up for his own personal lack of talent by overworking his underlings to the point of death at best we also learned that someone might have been trying to hide a body in the cold storage building, or not necessarily hide, get rid of a body in the cold storage building. We learned that the mayor's usefulness to his high power friends may have run out, um, possibly with connections to the Catholic Church, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, we learned that high power people were in control of the fate of Jackson Park well before the, fa the fair came to town. And that there could have been something under the ridge at Jackson Park. So, does this convince me personally of Tataria? No. But I am absolutely convinced that there were some very sketchy shenanigans going on at the World's Fair of Chicago, 1893. Um, I would almost bet that those rich people were up to something weird. So anyway, that is going to wrap, uh, wrap up this episode of What in the Sam Hill podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. What do you think about Tataria in general and then the Chicago World's Fair specifically? Hit me up on Twitter at WhatSamHillPod or email me WhatSamHill at ProtonMail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share the show. And I will see you again in the next episode.